Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with James Beach on Alistair Roberts and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes is in the background as usual, recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing everything out. Thank you for listening, and thank you for coming to visit our podcast. Podcast is a ministry, part of the ministry of the Theopolis Institute. Uh, the Theopolis Institute is, among other things, dedicated to teaching scripture and trying to uh, teach scripture in depth and encourage the in-depth study of scripture and to understand scripture, not only in its literal sense, but also in its uh, in the way it reveals the Lord Jesus. And uh, that's what we've been trying to do as we go through the book of Deuteronomy over the last several months. We've tried to look at the law itself and how the law functioned in ancient Israel, how the law applied to that ancient people, how it points ahead to Jesus, how it points ahead to the church and is fulfilled in the life of the church, uh, and then what implications it might hold for the life of nations. And those different layers we've been trying to trying to unpack as we go through these different detailed laws in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy is a set of sermons uh, that are delivered by Moses, a set of exhortations delivered by Moses as Israel camps on the, plain, the plains of Moab. Plains of Moab are just on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Uh, Israel's getting prepared to cross over the Jordan and begin to conquest and take Jericho. And they renew the covenant and have a last set of exhortations about the Torah before they go over. Uh, and a large section of Deuteronomy, as I've said repeatedly, is organized by the Ten Words. Uh, the Ten Commandments are given in Deuteronomy 5, and then from Deuteronomy 6 through chapter 26, we have a, a long stretch that has to do with, uh, that with, the, with each section having to do with one particular commandment. Uh, we're in the seventh commandment section, the seventh word section of Deuteronomy. Uh, Thou shalt not commit adultery is our seventh commandment. And uh, this section deals, obviously, with sexual sins, punishment for sexual crimes, but it also extends beyond those specific concerns that are obvious seventh commandment concerns to dealing with other sorts of things. Last time we talked about the opening part of uh, Deuteronomy 23, which has to do with admission to the assembly and uh, which peoples are excluded from the assemblies, the assembly of the Lord, what, what, what kind of people are excluded from the assembly of the Lord. We're going to touch back on that in just a moment. In the beginning of verse 9 of chapter 23, we move into another section where the focus is on the war camp when Israel goes out as a camp. Uh, that doesn't seem to have anything much to do with the seventh commandment. It seems more appropriate to class that under the sixth commandment, rules of war. And in fact, we do have a whole chapter on rules of war back in chapter 20. And chapter 23, verse 9 kind of starts out uh, with the same wording that's used in those different, uh, in those laws of war. When you go out to fight, when you go out as, uh, when you go out to fight the Lord's battles, when you go out as an army, those are the, that's the wording that's used in chapter 20 and it's repeated here in chapter 23. Uh, and yet the context suggests that this has something to do, something or other to do with the seventh word. And a couple of things that I think I mentioned uh, in the introduction of the last episode, I introduced this part of the chapter, but this, the way that this chapter, the uh, way that this section of the chapter, the things that it covers do have to do with sexual defilements, among other things. So Israel is supposed to guard the war camp. One of the things that defiles the war camp is, is a, a nocturnal omission, something that uh, seed coming out from a man that defiles, defiles the camp and he has to remove himself from the camp. And the the other language that's used that suggests a kind of bridal seventh commandment setting uh, is the language of verse fourteen, which says, 
because Yahweh is among you, it must, the camp must be kept holy. You must not find any thing of nakedness among you. Uh, that same phrase is used in chapter 24 uh, when it's talking about divorce. And when a man finds a thing of nakedness in his wife then and issues a certificate of divorce, uh, that seems to be some kind of sexual immorality that he discovers. Uh, and that very same phrase, the exact same phrase in the Hebrew is used in chapter 23, verse 14, about uh, what's in the war camp, the defilements of the war camp. So there are hints that uh, the war camp is in, in some ways analogous to a bridal setting, uh, a marital setting. Yahweh is in the midst of the camp. Israel, as the uh, organized as an army, is the warrior bride of Yahweh. There are also, I think, parallels between the war camp and the tabernacle that will maybe explore some more. The tabernacle is a holy space because Yahweh dwells there in glory. And the war camp is also, at least to some degree, a holy space because Yahweh is there. So there's this parallel between the place of worship and the war camp, uh, which suggests some implications, I think, for the church as both a, a, a temple gathering where the people offer a sacrifice of praise and also the gathering of holy warriors who carry on the holy war, the spiritual warfare of the kingdom. Jesus is the one in whom the word tabernacles, he is the He's the location of the glory of the Lord in the world. Uh, if you work out this parallel between the tabernacle and the war camp, then Jesus is also the location or the kind of the uh, the front, the first thrust of the war camp. That uh, he's he's the place where God's holy wars is uh, is being carried out, uh, and because he's the place where God's holy war is being carried out in the world, we in union with him are also enlisted into that into that holy war. So uh, that just sets some sets some parameters for that passage in twenty three verses nine through fourteen, but there are a couple of things we uh, left kind of undeveloped in the last episode. After we had finished, uh, we had some comments about a, a couple of things in the first part of chapter twenty three that we wanted to revisit. One of them has to do with verse one, which excludes those who are emasculated or have their male organ cut off from the assembly of the Lord. We talked about the analogy with the priests. When you have a uh, when you have a descendant of Aaron who is disfigured physically, he can't fully serve as a priest. He has certain priestly privileges, but he can't go up to the altar. He can't enter into the into the tabernacle because he has a physical deformity. And the same thing is happening to a lesser degree with those lay Israelites, non priestly Israelites, and the assembly of the Lord. So we wanted to develop that uh, that idea of the eunuchs in the in the house of the Lord. The other thing that was brought up is verse two, which says, "No one of illegitimate birth." The Hebrew word is mamzer. No one of illegitimate birth can enter the assembly of the Lord. Uh, and um, we wanted to explore the meaning of that term a little bit. So um, those are the questions that we're going to start with. And uh, I leave it open to uh, interventions from the rest of our team. Anybody have any thoughts about eunuchs? I mean, perhaps one thing to say is that the whole notion of excluding eunuchs here feels fairly countercultural. We often talk about how the Bible. Um, should be related to its culture, which, of course, is true. But as far as I can see, you could enter some quite privileged positions in a king's palace in other cultures in Assyria and Babylon and, and so forth if you are a eunuch. And in contrast, here we've got exclusion for that same thing, which, which seems an interesting detail. We might relate it to the fact that every Israelite man was supposed to be circumcised and so a eunuch could not relate to the covenant sign in quite the same way. 
Later on, of course, in Isaiah chapter 56, we're told that the eunuch should not say, behold, I am a dry tree, and the promise that those who kept the Sabbaths um, and held fast to the covenant would be given a place better than sons and daughters. Now, as James was saying, the privileged status of the eunuch within many ancient cultures resulted from the fact that the eunuch was not loyal to their own family. They didn't have their own offspring. And so they could be expected to throw in their lot completely with the um, interests of the dynasty or the ruling regime. And that gave them a, an added degree of trustworthiness within the assembly. And this is, in that sense, countercultural. We might also, as you noted earlier, um, Peter, relate it to the requirements for the priests who could not be um, emasculated or um, they also had to be, um, they also had specific requirements on this front. And so it, it seems also notable that there is a movement in the new covenant already foretold in Isaiah, um, where one of the first Gentile converts is an Ethiop Ethiopian eunuch. Might we also connect this with the importance of Israel as the seed line people, maybe even broader than that, the vocation to be fruitful and multiply, um, to be an example of uh, fruitfulness uh, to the nations, uh, but then narrowing it down to the fact that we're looking at here Israel being the uh, means by which the promised head crusher, the Messiah, comes comes into the world at a later time. Maybe that's a stretch, but um, it might be connected that way too. Yeah, I think that uh, to me, both of those both of those lines of thinking raise the question, particularly Alistair's raised the question of why there would be a, a shift with the inclusion of eunuchs. If you take Alistair's line, then you're talking about, I, I think, you know, the kind of thing Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians about uh, those who are have a wife have divided uh, responsibilities and interests. They want to take care of their wives, but also pursue the things of the Lord. And somebody who is not physically a eunuch, but somebody who has taken some kind of, uh, d is determined to be a celibate and, and unmarried, uh, is able to devote themselves to the church and cut themselves off. So, but why doesn't that work in Israel? Why, why are, why would the Israelites not want people who have that kind of loyalty to the nation rather than to specific family lines, I guess. Well, it is noteworthy that this is part not just of Paul's teaching and also of the prophetic expectation, but also of the um, teaching of our Lord when he talks about those who are eunuchs for the kingdom of God. And we might think in Isaiah, the way that in chapter 56, the description of the eunuch might recall the figure of the serpent, the servant who's cut off from the land of the living, who is presumed he will not see his generation. There's a sense in which he is like a eunuch. He's been cut off. He's lost any progeny. And then he sees his seed and his days are prolonged. There is a sense then in which Christ himself has something of a eunuch character. He's someone who does not bear physical offspring, but yet is fulfills the fruitfulness of the kingdom and is the true seed. Um, that development, I think, needs to be related then to the figure of Christ, who is the seed, 
who is the one who fulfills the promise of circumcision, who brings about the true fruitfulness, but also brings about, about the true fruitfulness as one who is, in some senses, more like a eunuch than like someone who has a great many children like Jacob or some figure along those lines. In Israel, there is difference, I would say, in that it's in this pre-eschatological state. There's not yet, the seed has not yet arrived. We might think of the way that this also relates to circumcision, that circumcision is always anticipating the great circumcision, the cutting off of Christ at the cross and the cutting off of the flesh in its fullness at that point. So in that respect, the eunuch is a, a sign of a new age that is not operating in the same way by um, physical procreation, even though physical procreation is seen as a, a very positive and blessed thing. It's not as integral to the logic of the covenant as it is in the old covenant. And so the figure of the eunuch can take on a new aspect, as can the figure of the single person. Yeah, I think that uh, that makes sense then. And it fits with what you, the passage from Isaiah that you quoted at the beginning, which is not just that eunuchs will be included, but that eunuchs will be made fruitful. So it's it's the, uh, there's a there's an expanded range of fruitfulness maybe. And I think too of the the contrast that it's a variation of a contrast that's through a good bit of the New Testament, but uh, Hebrews 7, which is talking about qualifications for priesthood. And it um, the contrast is between a qualification for priesthood that is determined by flesh which means physical descent. Um, and that's the Aaronic priesthood is determined by flesh. You have to be a descendant of Aaron. Jesus wouldn't be a priest at all under that uh, under that uh, rule. There's a change of law, a change of law re regarding uh, priesthood and qualification for priesthood. Uh, Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, not a priest according to flesh, by, but a, uh, by, by the power of an endless life. So it's priesthood by resurrection life. So, and I think that kind of contrast fits. So, the uh, Old Testament is functioning as a kind of fleshly covenant. The New Covenant is uh, functioning as a resurrection covenant. Right. All of which is part of a bigger shift, isn't it? Or at least a more general shift in terms of procreation and the family unit. And so, Jesus can refer to his mother and brothers as those who keep and do the, obey the word of God. And Paul will refer to the church as brothers and sisters and in a family unit and can talk about those whom he's begotten through the gospel and there seems to be um yeah that, that wider shift going on i wonder if it's also before we go sort of too far down the eunuch specific line if, if it's worth just thinking that this um exclusion from the assembly in chapter 23 is a kind of subset of the the wider exclusion from the priesthood, isn't it? So there, um, where are we? Leviticus 21 um, is a whole list of people who are excluded from um, approaching the altar. So those who are blind, um, lame, mutilated in some way, dwarf, defect in sight, um, which is quite interesting uh, given Eli's um, situation. But this seems to be then a um, a subset of a, of a more general principle, doesn't it, about kind of um, 
there being certain standards um, and certain ways of being excluded from um, uh, from Israel. Right, and excluded from the presence of the Lord by by physical markings and by physical maladies. Yeah, the the the, the list that you that you just read, James, obviously is a much longer list than we have in Deuteronomy twenty three. So the the uh, exclusions for priesthood are more extensive than the exclusions for common Israelites from the assembly. The exclusions that uh, for Israel from the assembly have specifically to do with sexual organs and deformed or cut off sexual organs. That's included in the priestly ones, but uh, in the priestly um, requirements. But the priestly requirements, as you re- read, include a lot more. And it does it does put us back in that you know specifically it's a eunuch that's excluded. I think in general you could say that the the difference has to do with degrees of nearness or degrees of holiness. The nearer you go to God, the more physically perfect you have to be. That's uh, and the more uh, danger you're in if you're either physically imperfect or in a state of uncleanness. It's one thing to be unclean and be operating out in the marketplace. It's another thing to be unclean and coming to the presence of the Lord. It's yet another degree of intensity of uh, transgression if you're unclean and you actually go up to the altar or you enter into the tabernacle. So it's not surprising that you have these uh, degrees of these degrees of exclusion that have different standards uh, for priests and people. Yes, and, and those- then we see the same sort of shift that Alistair mentioned earlier insofar as we have Jesus welcoming the um, lame, the blind into the temple and healing them and obviously against the back backdrop of Jesus saying it's better for you to enter life, which is eternal life, crippled or lame, um, than to be able and and yet cast into hell. And so, yeah, we can we can see the same um, new covenant shift there too. In the case of the priests, it would seem that there's some association with the sacrificial animals, which have to be without blemish. And I wonder whether that is something that we should see in this text as well. Are there um regular members of the assembly expected to be um without certain blemishes for sacrificial reasons well that's certainly the case with um with the priests i mean you can see it in the structure of leviticus 21 and 22 where the the list of disfiguring uh disqualifying uh physical physical uh pro- physical deformities for priests is structurally parallel to that for sacrificial animals, and the list includes some of the same things. So that def- definitely, there's that parallel. Israel is the flock of God, and Israel is to be. Israel offers herself as itself as a himself as a as a as a sacrifice to the Lord, and so there's uh, there would be those sacrificial connotations. I think reinforced by the fact that you're talking about entry into the assembly of the Lord, which echoes the language of entry into the into the house of God. Uh, Peter, have, hearing you say that about perfection and connecting with the sacrifices, I get that. And also drawing into the Lord's presence, uh, you have to uh, be an ideal, kind of ideal man, ideal human. Uh, I've always taken uh, 23.1, though, and I think I'm probably wrong because the language of the text doesn't indicate this, that this is something that was self-imposed or that was done by choice. And so I, I, I guess this means that anyone who has had crushed testicles accidentally or becomes a eunuch through some tragedy 
would also be cut off from the assembly. But I guess that's, I guess I hear that's what you guys are saying. And I, I, I think that probably makes the most sense of the language of the text. When we think about um, having someone being a unit, we'd probably think primarily about someone who, within modern society, someone who cannot have sexual satisfaction. And yet the emphasis is probably far more, as it is in places like Isaiah, upon the fact that the unit cannot bear children. And as with the um, person who's born of a forbidden union, in many cases they'd be cut off from the past um, in certain respects. The eunuch is in other respects cut off from the future and they don't necessarily have the same stake in that respect. And I wonder to what extent we're supposed to read these laws in terms of the importance of the assembly's stake in the past, in those who have gone beforehand, in their ancestors, and also in the um, stake in the future that they are those who are expected to bear descendants. And in both of those ways, they represent something of that community, not just as the community of a moment in time and its polity existing for its current immediate interests, but for the sake of those yet to be born and also honoring and maintaining the legacy of those who have gone before and died. Well, that future uh, dimension to this, Alistair, is one of the reasons why, as I understand it, um, you know, kings and those in positions of power would surround themselves with eunuchs because there was no threat from them of um, dynastic kind of uh, succession or just children defending their, their father or something like that so that you basically are uh, ex dedicated exclusively to the um, to the one that you serve um, and yeah whether that's in, in terms of some being some shrine kind of prostitute or anything or 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 whether it's to a, a human ruler uh, basically no future for the guy uh, other than to serve the one that he's pledged himself to yeah, and to wind this back, uh, that uh, does seem to be the uh, one of the factors when you're thinking of the shift from old to new. Think again of the Isaiah passage. The uh, let not the eunuch say, "Behold, I am a dry tree." That is, I have no fruitfulness. I have no, I have no future. Uh, rather, the eunuch is given a future because the fruitfulness that's promised in the new covenant is not a fruitfulness. Uh, fundamentally a flesh, but a fruitfulness of resurrection power and spirit. Right, which goes with the general thrust of Isaiah, doesn't it? Because we don't just get that um, discussion of the unit that is set alongside, um, of course, the servant of Isaiah 53 um, being cut off from the land of the living, and yet then seeing his seed prosper and against the backdrop of the barren, um, bearing many and becoming more fruitful, the lame leaping for joy um, and sort of being admitted on the path of the Lord. And, and so there is that whole um, context of Isaiah that makes sense of it. And interesting, it was, sort of comes back to what Jeff was saying, I think, about the eunuch. Um, sort of between 
if you like, the two halves of the book of Isaiah. There's um, Isaiah's own statement to Hezekiah, isn't there, when um, he says some of your sons will be carried off um, and they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And, and that feels like that's part of a of a curse on um, Hezekiah's line. They're, they're sort of destined not to have offspring. Well, I think we could spend surely another hour talking about eunuchs. But the other question that came up um, that we wanted to readdress was in verse 2 of chapter 23, uh, which is uh, the meaning of the word mamzer, mamzer, which is translated as uh, one of illegitimate birth in my NASB. It's not a common term, and I'm not sure there's any derivation, uh, any root that's used more commonly that can uh, that can illuminate it. I think I think James brought up the question of what was included in that, if I'm not mistaken. Did you have any insight on the meaning of the term? No, that that was why I brought it up. Does <laughs> anybody know the range of possibilities that are given for the term? Uh, looking at a lexicon, and it's just bastard, illegitimate child. But I'm not sure what the uh, it must be from cognate languages that comes. Now, I think one of the other questions that came up was whether this is just a matter of. Uh, children born out of wedlock, or if we're looking at uh, a wider range of, you know, I don't know what I don't know what it would include, but uh, uh, other other others who would be in, included under the category of a mamzer. I mean, one question could be: to what extent do we look at it contextually? So, there's just been the comment about a, um, a man not sleeping with his father's wife, and then afterwards there is the mention of. Ammonite and Moabite, which kind of brings Lot's incestuous relationships to mind. And so that kind of thing does seem to be in the context. To what extent we're meant to kind of import that into the term Mamzer is, is, I guess, an open question. Uh, do you think we could uh, follow the same kind of reasoning we've been talking about with the eunuch, that this uh, requirement is inverted, reversed with the coming of the new covenant? That um, you no longer have those who have, uh, have uh, you know a cloud over their over their ancestry over their birth. Those are now included, uh, and again on the same kind of reasoning that you have a you have a, uh, a focus not on the the generational descent of the seed leading up to the seed. You don't have a, a focus on fleshly standards for admission, but rather union with Christ and uh, sharing the Spirit. So in other words, this this would not have any application in the new covenant. And one of the one of the glories of the new covenant is that those who have that mamzers are included along with everybody else. That would feel consistent with the general shift that we've spoken about in the other cases, wouldn't it? So, uh, yeah. Well, I guess we can't. We're not going to talk about that as much as we talked about the eunuch. So I'll move on. The next section, as I said at the in the introduction, verses nine through fourteen of Deuteronomy twenty three. Uh, is about the war camp. The word camp appears seven times in this section, uh, and it's about it's about guarding the camp. Uh, that terminology is used, but it's guarding the camp from uh, not from enemy incursions or assaults, but rather from uncleanness that would offend Yahweh and cause Yahweh to abandon the camp. And from what I can see, there seems to be a, a kind of chiastic structure in this section. It starts out with uh, guard yourself from every evil thing in the camp. And that's the A section. The A, a prime section warns against a thing of nakedness in the camp. That's the last phrase of verse 14. So you have the word thing 
evil thing, nakedness, thing of nakedness that that uh, frame it. Then there are two cases where there's things are outside the camp. Uh, a man who has a nocturnal emission has to go outside the camp, and he doesn't re-enter until the the evening. Uh, and then there's uh, verse verse twelve and following. You have the uh, requirement that a latrine be set up outside the camp, so you don't have uh, excrement inside the camp. You go out to the outside. Uh, as the man who's had a nocturnal emission goes to the outside. So when you use the toilet, you go to the outside and then you cover up the excrement. And that would put at the center the uh, the purity ritual that's required. It's a simple purity ritual, bathing with water and then re-entering the cap at sundown. So uh, although the the uh, surrounding, the, the majority of this section has to do with exclusion from the war camp for various reasons, the center of it is the inclusion inclusion of the war camp, re-entry into the war camp through washing. So, you know, we could we could plug that into all the other washings that are part of the purity system in in laid out primarily in Leviticus, and all of which are pointing ahead to Christian baptism, which is the rite of inclusion, the rite of cleansing in the new covenant. From the perspective of this passage. Uh, the wash. This is a washing that reintroduces a warrior into the war camp, and we could, you know, uh, spin off a baptismal analogy that baptism is an incorporation into the war camp of Jesus. We become part of the church militant. Baptism is an adoption where we become sons of God. It's a kind of naturalization ceremony. We become citizens of the kingdom. Uh, it's also enlistment where we're uh, drafted into the Lord's army to carry on His spiritual war. It is surprising that uh, this law is here at the end of the Seventh Commandment uh, section. Um, it's also just surprising that it's in here. I mean, we have this explanation in verse 14, I think, which is significant. But look, this is something that all uh, military units practice when they're in the field. I mean, the Moabites would have done this. Uh, and I'm talking about just going outside the camp to relieve yourself. Uh, that's just what you do. It's so that there's something else going on here, as you mentioned, Peter. It's not just about hygiene, because everybody knows this is good hygiene. You don't go outside the entrance to your tent uh, inside the camp and re you know relieve yourself. You walk to the perimeter and you do your thing and you, you know, if you're thing needs to be covered up and you take your shovel with your trowel and you, you cover it up but here um this has some significance beyond hygiene uh this has significance as you mentioned peter about the holiness of the camp about yahweh uh traversing walking in the midst of the camp in order to to deliver you um and if there's anything indecent in the camp uh then the lord might turn away from you. The other thing that occurs to me is this is part of I, the uh, symbolic structure of the Hebrew system where anything that comes out of you is an indication that you are unclean. So it's not what goes into you, as Jesus says, but what, what comes out of you. So, um, so you have excrement, you have uh, urine, you have nocturnal emissions, which is uh, also all that kind of th all that then is it indicates that uh, the people, the the warriors, or 
unclean and need to be need to be washed, need to be purified before they can before the Lord will go with them in battle to deliver them from their enemies. I think one of the things that this passage adds is the it has to do with the character of the war camp and the status of the war camp because Leviticus, uh, the Lord is already in Leviticus. The Lord has already revealed that uh, any emission of seed defiles uh, a man. So if he has an ongoing emission from his penis, he's defiled for as long as that goes, and then he has to go through this rite of cleansing. If he has a nocturnal emission, that's an emission of seed, and that's defiles him. If he has sex with his wife, both of them are defiled, and they have to wait until sundown and wash themselves in order to be cleansed. So. Uh, in general, that's everyone knows that. What's not clear until this passage, I think, is the fact that that's excluding from the war camp. So, uh, purity in Leviticus is primarily to do with access to the Lord to the Lord's house to the tabernacle. You have to be clean to come into the tabernacle courts to offer a sacrifice to participate in a feast. If you have a you know have sex with your wife and you're not going to the tabernacle, you'll go through the washing rites in order to be cleansed, but you're not. You're not intruding on any holy ground. You don't have to. You don't have to leave anywhere. You don't have to leave your house. But uh, this passage indicates that there's a kind of there is a degree of holiness that attaches to the war camp. And as Jeff said, it's because Yahweh is in the midst of the war camp, and that means he's in the midst of the war camp in a way that's peculiar to the war camp. That's not the case with just the general, uh, you know, kind of general presence of God in everyday life. There's an intensity of his presence. Uh, and so the war camp has to be kept clean. Yes, that intensity of God's presence with the armies is quite an interesting thing. It struck me when the um, um, you mentioned chapter 20, Peter, and there um, at the start, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and army larger than your own, etc., you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of Egypt. And it repeats the same point later on. And this idea of the Lord, Lord being particularly present during um, war and in the war camp just seems interesting. You, you have the psalmist bemoaning, don't you? you? You no longer go out with our armies, O, o Lord. And you could think of um, Hophni and Phinehas in, insofar as they really try to fabricate the Lord's presence. The Lord isn't going out um, with them because of their uncleanness. And to take the ark out is a, is a kind of false substitute which goes wrong. And, of course, if we think about the New Testament model, we, we then have Jesus as the one who walks in the midst of the lampstands. And I wonder if that should lead us to have a kind of a more um, a more warlike view of the church and, and her mission, um, the, the fact that um, Jesus occupies that presence within her. Might also be worth thinking about the background of numbers, where in Leviticus we have a movement from Exodus where you have the tent of dwelling that's established at the end of the book. And Leviticus, that tent becomes primarily the tent of meeting, the place of communion between God and the people in the sacrificial system. And then in numbers, the people grow out from the, temp the tabernacle structure, and are ordered around that building with the Levites in the center, surrounding the tent, and then the rest of the congregation. And in that move, we see 
not just a camp that people move in and out from, but the people themselves becoming that ordered realm. They are set up as the camp in their assembly. And the person who's excluded from the full assembly is in some sense excluded, not from just a physical location, but from a company of people. And it seems to me that as we're dealing with these sorts of texts, it's helpful to have that background in numbers in our heads. This is not just a physical location. This is a company of people. The people have become the place. Sorry, what what was the nature of that shift from Exodus to numbers, Alistair? Can you recap that? So at the end of Exodus, you have the Lord dwelling in the tabernacle that was formed in pattern given in chapter 25 to 20, 31 and then built from 35 to 40. And then in chap in Leviticus, we move from that tent as a tent of dwelling, the Lord coming upon it with his glory presence at the end of the book, to the tabernacle as place of meeting with all the sacrificial system and the installation of the priests within the service of the tabernacle. And then in Numbers, the people are ordered around the tabernacle. So it's not just the tabernacle being a place of dwelling or even just a place of meeting. It's a part of an ordered constellation of the camp that surrounds it. I see. Gotcha. So you're not saying this is a, a shift that took place over time, but this this is a literary shift as you read through the Pentateuch. It is a literary shift, but there is also a these are things that are happening over a period of weeks or months. Sure, right. Now I'm looking for a, a scrolling, looking for a monograph that I read a number of years ago. I almost feel like I I wrote a blurb for it, and I can't remember what it was, who the author was, or what it. <laughs> this is bad, but uh, it was a it was a uh, monograph trying to uh, arguing that the tabernacle itself is kind of a command center in Israel's war. So, and, and I think he's dealing with Exodus, but I think probably particularly numbers where, as Alistair pointed out, you're, you're talking about the tribes of Israel that are organized around the tabernacle. And it's the, uh, the king of Israel is enthroned in that tent. And that becomes the kind of central command for the tribes of Israel who are going to go out and, and take the land. Joshua Berman um, is one person who makes the case that the dimensions of an Egypt, Egyptian pharaoh's war tent um, are the same as the, the tabernacle. And so you'd have the throne room, an antechamber, and then the courtyard around it. And so it's very similar in design and in its proportions and dimensions. Uh, what do you all make of the echoes of Genesis 3 in the garden here? Yahweh or God walking in the midst of the garden, same language from Genesis 3. And and also then this being part of the seventh word, the, the word against adultery. And then the connection here also at the end with um, anything indecent and the Lord turning away from them, the connection that I think Peter made at the beginning of the podcast, this erva devar, this indecent thing, which is then referred to in Deuteronomy 24, with regard to divorce and a man turning away from his wife. So that is this 
uh, might we say this is also this war camp is also like an Eden and his people are is there's a warrior bride here and that's also part of the imagery yeah I I, I hadn't thought of the Edenic resonance but it's obviously there when you point it out it's uh, Yahweh your God walks in the camp that's Genesis 3 uh, the phrase that you quoted um translated as thing of nakedness it's not the same word for naked that you find in uh in Genesis 2 and 3 but it's uh it it's a it's a related word uh for nakedness the tra- translated as indecent thing so um the kind the, the way i would tease this out spin it out would be there's uh you're guarding the camp from some kind of serpent intrusion the serpent intrusion could come from the warriors themselves who expose nakedness and therefore become come under the Lord's judgment. The fact that the Lord is walking in the midst of the camp sounds like an inspection. And as, as uh, uh, Genesis three is, he's coming to inspect the troops. And so uh, the, the warriors stand in danger of Yahweh's judgment and permanent exclusion from the camp. Uh, if, uh, if Yahweh finds indecent things in it. So, uh, yeah, I think there's definitely an Edenic, uh, there's an Edenic overlay here that uh, maybe maybe all have some other thoughts about how that's working. One of the things that intrigues me here, uh, Jeff mentioned this, uh, but I just I wanted to highlight a particular detail. of This you have, yeah, you know, the hygienic program of having a latrine outside the camp. Everybody does that. Uh, it has a particular rationale here. What's uh, intriguing, I think, is that that is not a defiling thing for the for the person. So a, a man who leaves the camp, uses the uses the latrine, covers it over, and comes back, he can come immediately back into the camp, as opposed to somebody who has an emission from sexual organs. That means he's excluded for the rest of the day and doesn't come back till sundown and after washing. But it's interesting that although both of them are coming out from the body, you'd think that there'd be an analogy between them. But it's very specifically things that are coming, things that come out from the flesh. That's the language of Leviticus 15, which refers here to the sexual organs. That's what defiles. Well, but that, but Peter, that's because the nocturnal emission would happen inside the camp in your tent. So, it, the uh, right. what I think what what Alistair said before is this camp now has become, you know, a a traveling mobile kind of holy holy ground like tabernacle an extension of the tabernacle so that if if it's it's what happens within that perimeter which is important yeah but i guess i i would think that um the defilement of a, of a nocturnal emission it seems would still would still apply you still be excluded even if the i i'm trying to think of how this would happen but you know somebody's uh, sleeping outside the camp has a nocturnal emission i think he would still have to wait till sundown there's just no delay, and there's nothing in Leviticus that requires urination or defination. Uh, uh, de- uh, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, defecation. Uh, that those are defiling. Uh, it's emissions from the flesh, which in in uh, Leviticus 15 is specifically emissions from sexual organs, and elimination of excrement is not, and or urine is not mentioned at all in Leviticus. Yeah, but again, the, the in verse ten, the nocturnal emission happens inside the camp, and he has to go outside the camp. Whereas in verse twelve, you you're going outside the camp to 
to relieve yourself. That, I think that's the difference. Something we've commented upon in various contexts in the past, for instance, in thinking about the actions of David and his um, words to the priests at Nob, there is a sort of temporary holy status for the warriors of Israel. They um, maybe take on something akin to, if not actually, the state of the Nazarite for the period of time in which they're part of the war assembly. And we see on various occasions this playing out places like Numbers 31 can think about the way that the Israelite warrior is, for the period of time that he's part of this assembly, supposed to refrain from sexual activity um, within the camp. There's a sense in which this is uh, a sort of virginal army, such as we see in the book of Revelation. And for that um, status, it seems that the idea of this is something that goes with the idea of holy war, that for the period of time that they're engaged in this com conflict, they are dedicated to the Lord in a particularly um, intense way, and they can't engage in regular common activity. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's also significant. Yeah, you can reason from the lesser to the greater. If uh, if a man's nocturnal omission excludes him from the camp, then if he brings a, a prostitute into the camp and sleeps with her, that also is going to defile. He's not not supposed to do that. Or takes a war bride and brings her in and rapes a woman in the camp. That's uh, that's not uh, allowed either. So there is a yeah. There's there's other dimensions to the holiness that's being required that. Uh, not just about the nocturnal mission, but there's a kind of sexual purity that's being enjoined on the army. And it would seem to go be beyond a war bride or a prostitute. It would also include his own wife, as we see in the case of Uriah, um, his refusal to right, sleep right. with his wife Bathsheba. Yes, or, or even the, the um, uh, uh, restriction in Exodus 19, where the uh, uh, the people are to abstain from sexual relationships before the Lord comes at um, Mount Sinai. I'm intrigued, by the way, of this um, of the exact nature, or not nature necessarily, but the uh, reference to bathing in verse 11, because when evening comes, it, it seems sort of that that's, I don't know, dusk or something, like when it's getting dark, um, the person bathes themselves Um and then once the sun has set, it's, it's sort of quite explicit, which I guess could be a fair bit later, he may come inside the, the camp. So the the bathing is kind of necessary, but it's not sufficient. You know, it, it seems in some way just to reflect the law's um, inadequacy to deal with sin. I know this isn't um, sin specifically, but it, it seems to reflect its, its insufficiency in, in various ways. Right, right. Yeah, I think I think that's um, that combination is uh, pretty common in the Levitical purity system. So somebody right. is defiled, uh, they do have to wash, but there's also a until evening termination point. They have to wait until evening, even after washing. It's frequently that combination. It's interesting that uh, not every form of impurity requires requires an act of washing. Sometimes it's just the passage of time that removes that. I don't remember now if uh, 
Yeah. So if a man lies with a woman, there's a seminal omission. They both have to bathe in water and they'll be unclean until evening. That's Leviticus 15, 18. So I'd, I'd have to look back at Leviticus 15. It may be that all all emissions, all sexual emissions are emissions from the sexual organs are uh, require both washing and waiting till evening. But there's some that just fade when the day is done. So this is a, a somewhat more intense form of impurity than others uh, because it, it, it requires this kind of baptismal purification. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.